Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. George Nori back with you. We will take calls next hour with Sir Charles Schultz III as we're talking about all things space. Sir Charles Mars, what was it about Mars that caught your attention? Well, you know, it's a very Earth-like planet in a lot of ways. It appears to show changes of color and season like a lot of people in the past had seen. And a lot of things gave us hints that it probably held some sort of life. And so, I mean, the very fact that it's the planet next door and it might hold life, those two things together uh, make you ask a lot of questions. Fun place to explore, lots of things to learn that could tell us a lot of things about the Earth itself. Speculate for us, paint us a picture. What do you think Mars looked like several billion years ago? Well, very much like the Earth. Uh, it started out the same. It was made of the same solar system with the same materials. It had a lot of the same history and chemistry. It uh, is a terrestrial, rocky planet, and it had less gravity, so its atmosphere leaked away into space very rapidly. It cooled off rapidly because of its small size, so its volcanoes can't replenish its atmosphere or its ocean, but it would have been very much like the primitive Earth, uh, a scummy ocean full of early microbes and uh, the same sort of competition and evolution we see here. And what happened to the waters? Did they evaporate up or did they sink down? Well, a lot of it would have been lost to space, but, uh, you know, just because of the low atmosphere uh, pressure and the uh, solar wind. However, a lot of it is still on the planet. Right now, the whole planet is in an ice age, and its oceans are still present, but they're there as glaciers. They're frozen mm-hmm. in the soil. Now, most of the water then that might have evaporated, would they have had a lot of rainy seasons because of that, as all these ocean waters are floating off into space? Well, that really wouldn't create a rainy season. That's just a, a drying, a desiccating effect. And nevertheless, there would have been a lot of rain on the planet, and we could tell that there had to have been some sort of biological activity for the very fact that the planet is red. It's the color of rust. So there had to be water and oxygen present in a large uh, amount, just as we had on the Earth. You know, there's a period of the Earth's history called the Great Rusting. And during that period, microbes that were producing oxygen for the first time started weathering the planet. Well, the fact that we see Mars covered by the Great Rusting effects as well tells us that there had to have been life there. What about the possibility of intelligent life? I don't think so at all, because the conditions were very harsh. Uh, From what I see, there was never an atmosphere of any great thickness in the last billion years, and so it would have been uh, the oceans. Everything would have lived in the water. Uh, It would have been the surrogate atmosphere. So if there was ever anything intelligent on Mars, it had to come from somewhere else. Interesting. Okay, and in terms of life, what might it have been? It would have been mostly marine life. There certainly would have been some things to emerge on the land. But keep in mind, there's one very important factor that would keep most of its life in its oceans. No ozone layer. The uh, life on Earth didn't come out of its oceans until there was a thick ozone layer that allowed things to get out of the water without being killed. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Do you? What about Europa? What do you think's going on there, one of Jupiter's moons? Now, that is one of the most fascinating environments in our whole solar system. Here we have a moon that's very small, has, uh, you know, maybe 5% of the uh, gravitational force that the Earth does, and it has a shell of ice and an ocean on the inside. When you look at that little moon, you see an interesting brown color mixed to the ice. Well, an analysis of that color, looking at its spectrum, shows that it is precisely the same color as bacteria that's been damaged by radiation. Hmm. And Jupiter's magnetic field traps an incredible magnetic uh, load of radioactive uh, forces there, like our Van Allen belts. So particles from space and from the sun have created an immense field of radiation. It would basically take you about three feet of lead to shield yourself from the effects. 
Now, organisms under the ice in Europa, if any exist, would be quite comfortable there. But it's a very, uh, a very likely target for finding living things in our solar system right now. Do they have liquid water under there? Yes, there are huge pockets of liquid water, basically uh, the same as our oceans. And the reason for that is because even though it's very far from the sun and very cold, Jupiter itself has an immense magnetic field and also a gravitational field. And as these moons orbit the planet, they're being flexed and kneaded, and it heats the, inter- the interiors and creates these oceans, keeps them from freezing. How deep do you think the ice is on Europa? It appears the ice is roughly anywhere from 1 to 20 kilometers based on where you look. And a good average is about 10 kilometers thick. So call it six miles of ice. Wow! That's a lot of ice. It is a lot of ice. But fortunately, if we wanted to get samples and see what's inside, we could go to one of the areas where there's a crack in the ice. Now, that shell of ice is being flexed just like the planet, and it fractures. And so materials that are inside the oceans can ooze up through those cracks and freeze on the surface. It would be a very simple um, maneuver to land on the ice, scoop up some of the material, and start searching for organic compounds and possibly organisms. What is it about space, Sir Charles, that caught your attention when you were a younger person? Well, everything is in space when you think about it. We are truly in space. We just happen to be stuck on a planet. If you look at the world around us and you look at all the places we explore and how fascinating they are and their differences, you wonder what might be out there in the universe. And so space is a place where everything is. And we're, if we could reach orbit, we're halfway to anywhere in the, in the universe. What are CubeSats? Ah, uh, you know, when they send this uh, next mission to the moon in this new capsule, this Orion capsule, they will be launching a number of these CubeSats. And a CubeSat is a very small, standardized type of satellite. You can go online and get the drawings. And many hobbyists and college groups have built and flown CubeSats. So it's a standard that determines the dimensions, the mass, and the uh, electronic interface for these sorts of things. A lot of people build them launch them uh, piggybacking on other rocket launches. Uh, It's a very compact, uh, manageable system. Imagine your old telephone in a booth versus the cell phone in your pocket. Well, the CubeSat is that version of a satellite. It's a tiny, compact satellite. What happened to Russia, then the Soviet Union? They seem to have given up trying to go to the moon. Well, now that's very interesting. I think one of the things that's very important is to recognize that anything you invest money in needs to have a yield, has to have a payoff. Yes, sure. It's expensive, and there's no place to go there. There's certainly not a McDonald's or a Starbucks. And so if you get there, you really don't have much to do except look at a big rock. If you could monetize that, if you could turn it into an opportunity to mine and find materials, that's great. Russia's had a lot of plans, as do India and China, to go to the moon specifically for minerals or other valuable materials. I mean, early on, exploration was a big thing, and it drove our technology growth. Now, today, I don't think Russia is so much interested in that as they are in getting something happening that's going to help them out as a country. Well, they don't have that uh, many resources in terms of uh, money anymore. You know, that's true. I mean, when the Soviet Union broke up, instead of having one monstrous, huge financial organization, you had 20, 21 little countries, each with their own interests. And it makes it much more difficult to have a coalition that can fund something as effective as our space program. Our last mission to the moon uh, was uh, Apollo 17, 1972. That's right. So in theory, we haven't been back to the moon until then. 
that was uh, 47 years ago. Uh, you know, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. Why did we stop? And again, it came down to economics. Once we had achieved the goal of beating the Russians, of getting there, we really had so many new toys technically to play with and so many things to do. But the money, the backing for this sort of thing, dried up very rapidly. Um, we were fighting with Congress all the time to get funding for a lot of this stuff. And, and understand that space flight is not um, without a lot of politics. Think about if you're a senator or you're representing a certain area, you're going to fight to get funding into your state if it pays your workers and gets you more votes. It's not so much about the technology as it is controlling the flow of money when really it, we should be focused on the technical developments and how it can improve our standard of living here. We just think about what we can do cleaning up the environment using space technology. There are some who say that we need to be able to go into space to leave the planet one day. Do you well, see that as a possibility? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we are in a position where we're basically poisoning the planet. And while we do have the technology to clean it up, uh, none of it's being implemented. If we have the ability to travel in space, if we have the ability to terraform or make livable any other environment, but also proves that we have the ability to clean up the Earth. I think in some respects, people always need the ability to study, to, to plan, to move somewhere else, to explore. Explorations in our blood. And when we get off the planet, we also have the, the advantage of not leaving all of our eggs in one basket. As a lot of people have pointed out, it's very brilliant people, if we were to have one natural disaster on Earth or one uh, nuclear war or one biological catastrophe, we could light, you know, wipe out life on Earth. And if we have a number of isolated colonies throughout our solar system, that's much less likely. We have the ability to have a backup plan. We have other places we can live. And a disaster would burn itself out locally, and we'd still have humanity. So, Charles Schultz with us. Do you think it, it was, would, would be worthwhile to prolong life, even if you lived on another planet with basically nothing to do, let's say you're in some bubble uh, trying to grow your own food, for example, because eventually you're going to run out, as opposed to just staying on planet Earth and toughening it out until it's the end? You know, prolonging life is basically the only thing a lot of people are doing these days. They're doing their best to live as long as they can. But the big issue here is we, as a technical civilization, are on the brink of amazing developments. We've just recently been able to upload the, the whole neural structure of small organisms into a computer, and people are pushing to upload the human mind into a computer. That would effectively mean that you're basically immortal. Um, prolonging your life, you know, we always think of it from the organic perspective. We're all organisms, and we eat, we live, we die. We age and we spoil, just like a rotten fruit, in effect. And we are fighting to reverse that and end that so that we can live forever. So when you say, you know, extending your life on a planet, living in a bubble somewhere, stop and think for a moment what we do everywhere we move. We always start with the minimums. We tough it out, and then we build a paradise. We build all of our tools. We make life better. We wouldn't live in a bubble forever on another planet. We would eventually make huge cities and infrastructure. That's what we do. I saw a homeless person last night uh, leaving work, sleeping on the sidewalk with a shopping cart next to him, yeah. full of stuff, junk. But for him, it was his possessions, his worldly possessions. And as I drove past him, 
you know, I'm thinking he's alive, he's existing, but is he living? And there's a, there's a paradox there between how you really want to live your life and just existing. Could you do what he did? Could you live like that? I mean, that's how you would live on Mars. You'd be like that. Well, only up to a point. One of the problems that we have in society, homelessness is a societal failure in many cases. You know, it's, uh, I mean, years ago we knew how we could live. We could go out there and cut a piece of land up and grow some food and, and we could be independent. Not many people can do that anymore. Exactly. We are now living in a society where technology has put us in a position where we almost all work for other people. And when that work isn't there, but we don't have the skills to do otherwise, the money to get started in the business, we basically are out on the street, and there aren't any options. There's no uh, backup plan. And, what, you know, this is one of the causes of homelessness. But another one is there are a lot of uh, forms of mental illness or economic problems or medical bills or something that put you on the street, and it can be very, very difficult to recover sure. from that. Well, I see. I think that homeless person would be more apt to live on Mars than you or I would be. And that's also another thought. You see, if you're living in an environment like that, there is a premium on getting you to stay alive. You have to live well. If you're putting up a colony on another planet, you depend on the abilities and presence of other human beings to get that job done. You work together as a community. We need each other. On the Earth, we've been marginalized in a lot of ways. Space might provide a little bit of what's necessary for people to see how much we depend on other human beings. We're so isolated today, we stand there with our eyes directed into our palms or our hands on a cell phone. We have all the information of humanity at our disposal, and we look at cat videos and and share jokes. Hmm. Six-mile-wide asteroid, if it were coming this way and we had a year's notice, would they tell us about it? Well, that's a great question. You know, <laughs> uh, I can't get into the heads of these people. Uh, it would make almost... It's a no planet sense. killer. Oh, it's a planet killer, absolutely. It would make no sense to keep it quiet. But on the other hand, uh, not everybody would keep it quiet. No, some some amateur it. would find it. Well, absolutely. Something that size, somebody would spot it. Here's the thing. We actually do have technologies that would allow us to move an asteroid like that if we had a year's lead time. And it would be a monumental effort, but we could do it. And I'll tell you something. uh, It doesn't take nuclear weapons or giant lasers or huge spacecrafts to do. If you were to send up a thin solar mirror made of, uh, like, mylar plastic, uh, and a number of them, and get them near that asteroid and use the sunlight to heat the asteroid to the point where portions of it vaporize, they, they would act like mini rocket engines. You, like you push the it. Asteroid. They would push it, that's right. We only need to change the course of that asteroid by roughly seven minutes of arrival time. Nuking it might not be a good idea because then you've created a zillion little particles that come flying down on you. That's true. The other thing is, it's called transfer function. When you blow off a nuclear weapon next to an asteroid, how much of the energy actually gets deposited into moving the asteroid? Not much. There is a strategy that was developed a while back where you would take two nukes. The first would be exploded right at the surface to produce a huge cloud of plasma and and, uh, vaporized material. The second would be exploded shortly afterwards to make that plasma absorb the energy and act as a thrusting agent. Would you want to know that you had a year left 
or would you just want to live your days like you're living them? I would rather know because perhaps it would change the way we think and the way we act with each other. I mean, we need to be kinder and more human to each other. I think we'd be worse. Well, yes, and that's because the worst seems to emerge in people in times of There'd be panic. Oh, it would be awful. Awful. I mean, look what happens with a snowstorm in the Midwest. When they announce that there's going to be snow, people attack the stores, they push, they fight. Or on the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, the shopping season, people, people literally duke it out in a store. Over, over a sweater. TVs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so you can imagine if they say, folks, an asteroid's coming this way, we will all be wiped out, it's over. Well, here's the thing. We would hope that the small fraction of people who have huge resources at their disposal would recognize the necessity of pulling everybody together to get something done. I'd want to be on the air, Sir Charles. I want to be interviewing you, for example. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, all we hear is... Well, that's it. <laughs> I guess there's a number of ways to go out that might be considered honorable, but for me, going out at all is not a good thing. Um, I think that if we can support each other and deflect the asteroid, the things that we would learn in that effort would be more than enough to help us make life sure. better everywhere. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.